0: Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and podcast that's been running for three years now. What we do is we get people to come along to the show and stand up and do tragedy and we get people from a variety of different Parts of the arts, we've got comedians, storytellers, musicians, spoken word artists, and more. And they come together to look at the sadder things in life with some laughs as well as some tears. Hello everybody! Are we recording by the way, Harv? That's always handy. Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave, and I'm your host. Now, what we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we invite people to come along and stand up on stage and do some tragedy. It's as simple as that, really. Um, We get all sorts of people to to stand up and do tragedy uh, from all of the different parts of the arts. And so we should expect on this stage tonight to see things that are going to make us feel sad uh, because that's what tragedy is about. Um, So this is kind of also, as well as an introduction to the night, it's a content note to prepare yourselves for the kind of content that happens in tragedy. Uh, So there may be some death There may be some sadness, there may be some complicated things to process, but that's okay because we're going to process them together. Because what I want Stand Up Tragedy to be is a safe space to talk about unsafe things. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Uh, We're going to make you cry until you laugh and laugh until you cry. That's the idea. Okay, so we are a live show. We are also a podcast. Um, So in the next week's coming after now you will be able to hear the things you heard in this room and you'll be able to tell your friends to listen to them uh, which is always handy you can find that on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts go to hang out on the internet really so there you go that's that bit of admin or sadmin as I like to call it uh, done so this year we're doing uh, four shows in London they're seasonal uh, so we've already had tragic winter today it's tragic spring And so, I guess it's going to be about things, you know, when things start to grow, when things start, it often means that things are also dying. Uh, So I think that that is kind of what these transitional months are like. Like my favourite two two parts of the year, really, my favourite seasons are spring and autumn, because it's when everything is happening. Life and death, birth and uh, whatever, well, life's the opposite of birth, so I've fucked that up royally. So... That's what we're going to do. We're going to explore new things, I guess. Spring, the kind of topics that connect us with the idea of spring. So basically, we've got three acts, uh, three parts, and each part will be a different podcast, Um, and they're going to have different themes. So the themes we've got tonight are tragic beginnings. Tragic Bodies, which is guest-curated and hosted by Matilda Gregory, so I've got no idea what's happening in that part of the night, so I'm really excited about that. And Tragic Sex is how we're going to end, which is a good way to end most nights, I think. Um, So yes, that's that's, that's the night that we've got, and we are now in Act 1, Tragic Beginnings. Right, there we go, as simple as that. We are now in that act. So I'm going to welcome our first performer to the stage to do something about tragic beginnings. Um, So put your hands together for Paul Case.
1: Cheers, Dave. Hello, everyone. How's it going? All right. Uh, Just by way of warning... um, you won't, like, learn anything from this story. <laughs> no? Good. So I tried to, like, squat a few uh, times in the past. Um, uh, one of the first semi-successful times was when uh, me and a friend got in a, in a house around Hackney. This was when residential squatting was uh, still legal. We got into a house... In Hackney, uh, we got in through the back window and I had to uh, angle grind my way out of the front door in the middle of the day, which resulted in my arrest and 19 hours in the police cell and a Kafkaesque nightmare. So being on somewhat of the wussy end of like the anarchist spectrum, (laughs) right, this was enough to put me off squatting for 18 months, (laughs) right? So during this 18 months, I moved into a flat with a friend of mine, in Stoke Newington on Fountain Road. And all was uh, quite lovely, apart from the extortionate rent and then what happened uh, there was a fa- uh, faulty extractor fan in the uh, in the bathroom uh set on, came on fire like one night it just you know burst into flames and after we put it out um, the uh, we realized the fire alarms hadn't gone off We're like that's illegal, isn't it so we got angry with the landlord, the landlord got angry with us, uh, we got angry at him, he got angry at us, and finally we were just like, fuck this, we're leaving, right, we're going. So my friend went to go and live with another friend of his, another friend of mine was of his partner, and I chose this opportunity to start squatting like prop this time, because I was just done, like paying money to landlords. So I rang up my friend Kat, who I knew was squatting and said, hi, cat. how's it going? We haven't spoken in ages. And she was like, oh, it's nice to hear from you, Paul. I was like, yeah, so you're still squatting? And she was like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, Ace, can I come and live with you? And she said, yeah, all right, because she like took pity on me, and that was really, really lovely. And so it was this place in Balls Pond Road uh, in Dalston, um, which is now an antique store, I believe. It was a really beautiful space. It was like a shop front downstairs, which led up some offices on the upstairs. It was an absolutely beautiful place. Uh, electricity, running water, like really, really comfortable. Awesome place to start squatting. And so, on my very first night there, me and this girl, Nafisa, were uh, occupying. Now, one of the things you should know about squatting is that, if you don't know already, is that legally, you need, in order to make it legit, you need one or more people occupying the premises at any one time, right, in order to make it legitimate. So everyone else was out, and me and Nafisa were just staying in. And when it's your first night, especially your first night, your very first proper squat You start to get a bit nervous, you know, it's kind of like an unexplored building, you don't really know what's going on, it's kind of creepy, all these like old childlike fears start coming back and every kind of creak and crack is like laden with portents, you know, everything has this, everything's like this ominous omen. And we did what any right thinking people do to sort of like, you know, calm these nerves, so we just like started drinking, right? (laughs) and and you know me and the feast were getting on on fine and i thought oh great for, for once i'm talking to a woman it's not t- turning to complete ashes in my hands and that and that was and that was quite nice and we everything was So everything was going rather swimmingly and so i elected to go and get more beer so i went out to the local shop and got some beer i got the squatters choice of like a blue plastic bag filled to breaking point with cheap polish lager right so then I came back, went upstairs, and Nafisa was on the second floor, looking out of the window, and she was on the phone, and she said, she was saying to the phone, and she was on the phone to Kat, who I mentioned earlier, the one who had invited me to start squatting in the first place, right. And she was saying, oh, cat man, thanks so much for letting us stay here. Like, this place is amazing. You know, it's beautiful. Like, you know, you've got electricity, you've got running water. This is absolutely incredible. Like Oh, and, and she's looking out the window. And she goes, oh, and it's got a roof terrace. And bear in mind, right, before like, I tell the rest of the story, I really was quite pissed at this point. Right? So what ended up happening was I said, oh, right, yeah, a roof terrace. So I opened up the window and I stepped out. Right? And there wasn't a roof terrace there. Right? In fact, there was nothing there. In fact, the roof terrace was a roof of an opposite building that was about a meter away. So at this point, you can imagine, right, you know, I've got very few choices. Right. So I fell, I fell. I, I, yeah. I like, I fell uh, two and a half stories and landed, right? And as you can understand, I I blacked out for a bit, you know? And I sort of came to, and I came to to hear Nafisa screaming, oh my God, Paul's fallen out of the fucking window. You know, because even though she's a bit drunk, she's still, you know, really observant. And... So I sort of came to with Nafisa screaming, Paul, are you okay? Paul, are you okay? Paul, are you okay? And I said, I'm fine. I wasn't fine. Obviously, I wasn't fine. I've fallen two and a half stories. Right? But what actually happened was, fortunately, right, I'd fallen kind of comedy style on some tires. Right? I'd actually fallen on some tires. Right? <laughs> so they were the only thing protecting, between, uh, protecting me from like, falling onto concrete. Right? So I stood up, as you do, and I was in quite—I was in quite a lot of pain, as you can imagine. And I, I, ch- I checked out my surroundings. Right, and it turned out I hadn't fallen into the street. I hadn't fallen into an alleyway. Right, I'd fallen into what was basically just a gap between four buildings. All right. So there's no way out. I forgot to mention something. Right, on the way down, right, I'd actually burst a water pipe. Right, so all this water was like kind of gushing down into the alleyway on me while this, while all this was happening, while I was racked I was completely like wracked with pain. And so I looked around trying to obviously find a way out. And the feast said, how are you going to get out? And I said, I don't know. And then I remembered the famous Yazoo song, the only way is up, right? So I decided to take that advice and sort of look up and realise, yeah, the only way was up. There was literally no way out of here. So the water's kind of like an Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom or something, the water's kind of filling around my ankles, like, slowly. And, you know, I've just got to go up. That's the only option. So I, I get the wall, and I, I don't know how I do this. I'm a bit pissed, and obviously when you're a bit pissed, you know, you sort of, all your pain receptors are slightly dulled. So I managed to, like, find a grip on the wall. I managed to find another grip, and another grip, and another grip. And I hauled myself on, on, I might add, to the roof I was initially thought was a roof terrace right, I managed to reach it eventually and um, so I I landed on that and was kind of rolling around in pain for a bit and I looked across opposite to the window I'd fallen out of right and Nafisa was gone and I was heartbroken and absolutely devastated, I was like where the fuck is Nafisa obviously you know and then she appeared at the window, she appeared at the window holding, heroically holding a ladder Right, which you put across the gap. You think we could have thought this before, right? You put, um, put across the gap, allowing me to sort of clamber over the ladder and roll back into the house, obviously still in quite a lot of pain. Nafisa uh, rang a cab, and I'm spending my first night squatting under the cold clinical lights of Homerton Hospital's waiting room. I got back at like five in the morning dosed off my balls on cocodermol, like, absolutely just head like a marshmallow, where all the other people I lived with were waiting up, and they had gone past the worried stage, and they were all just really, really, really pissed off with me. And I told you, you'd learn nothing new from that story. And that's the real tragedy, isn't it? Thank you ever so much, cheers.
0: Paul Case, everybody. Yeah, that's great. Right. So, I mean, as I, as I said earlier on, every act is different. So expect the unexpected. Um, and the next act is certainly unexpected. Uh, the last time he was on our stage, he was hammering a grape into the face of Justin Bieber whilst reciting Greek tragedy so I have no idea what's going to happen now. Uh, he'll be doing his new show, The Golden Age of Steam, at Edinburgh this year, so look out for that. And put your hands together for Michael Brunstrom! Thank, Thank you!
2: Thank you! Mine. Uh, remove these <laughs> Green! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> 23rd of April 1962 and I was having a little party at my flagship store bazaar on the Kings Road. Everyone was there as a garland of course Jean Shrimpton looking lovely. David Bailey was there with his camera, of course. And the boys, Mick and Keith, were clowning around. And in the corner, a small gramophone record player, played the latest hit song. In my memory, it all comes flooding back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ladies and gentlemen, what a joy it was to be there in the early days, just starting out. And yet, and yet, and yet, None who were there at that party, and I least of all, could have supposed that a mere six months later, I should be found thousands of miles away, in the North Atlantic, harpoon in hand, aboard the whaling ship Kirkcarrion. Hunting humpback whales off the coast of Nova Scotia. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was a wild night. And the wind sent them. Clouds scudding across the full moon, casting eerie shadows over the ice floes. As I scanned the icy depths around the Kirk Carrion, for a telltale shadow of the marine cetacean I so desperately sought. There! There! cried a familiar face standing beside me. This was Mackenzie. Oh, Mackenzie! Mackenzie, Mackenzie! Mackenzie! He of the bright eyes and bushy red beard. His face was known in every port. In every trading station, and in every bar, from Halifax to Hudson Bay. It was he who had become, in such a short time, as it were a second father to me. He had taught me everything he knew about whaling, how to wield a harpoon, how, To render whale oil over an open fire. How to trade whale bones and barter a good price. (laughs) Now, Mary, now, he cried, pointing a bony finger as I plunged my harpoon into the side of the behemoth. And it stuck there. Like a like a harpoon <laughs> <laughs> I clung on with all my might and would have certainly been washed ashore aside, were it not for the quick wits of Mackenzie who grabbed hold of the strap of my handbag <laughs> <laughs> Pull Mary, pull screamed Mackenzie. But oh, oh! At that moment, the marine mammal gave a mighty blow of its tail upon the hull of the Kirkcarrion, and I and Mackenzie were thrown over the side of the Kirkcarrion and in to the black. Arctic depth below. (coughs) When I regained consciousness, (laughs) I was in an unfamiliar cabin. And the face of Captain Carmichael was leaning over me. Mackenzie! 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 I yelled in a frostbitten frenzy. But oh, his grave expression told me all I needed to know. Five weeks later, I was back in London, in my studio in Kentish Town, preparing for my spring collection, which was the opening in Milan. In the corner, a small gramophone record player played the latest hit song. I never did return to whaling. <laughs> by the end of the decade I received an MBE for my services to fashion my name has become synonymous with the swinging London style and there are Mary Quant shops all across the globe. And yet, and yet, and yet,
0: So as I said, I didn't know what to expect. <laughs> okay, so the next act would have been uh, Sophia Walker, but she's had to pull out today. So I'm sorry if anyone came to see Sophia Walker. She's an amazing spoken word artist, and she's, I, you should totally check her out. Uh, but she had to pull out at the last minute. So instead of her tragic beginnings, um, I'm moving my set that was in the tragic sex part of the night to hear, uh, because it also fits with tragic beginnings. Uh, so you get some extra sex, uh, and some, and and, and the next, uh, the next act is me. So put your hands together for me. <clears throat> So, um, f- before I, I start myself, I want to do a couple of content notes in that first of all, the content that you're hearing is very new. Uh, and so be, be be patient with it. It's, it's, it's the first time I've ever done it. Um, and also, it does touch on uh, sexual assault and rape amongst other things. So those things are coming up so prepare yourselves or don't prepare yourselves and go out for a a fag or whatever you want but that's what's happening Uh, right so I'm doing my show uh, a a solo show in Edinburgh this year uh, and it's called What About The Men Mansplaining Masculinity Um, and uh, as part of this show as part of the research for this show I put together a survey for men to fill in called The Man Survey which you can find at hashtag man survey on Twitter Um, and and in, it, I sort of set that, that survey up to answer, the, my, answer my questions about what, what men think about patriarchy and what men think about masculinity. Um, and so uh, I'm going to do the first little bit of that that I've ever done in public. It won't be the start of that show, but that's what I'm going to do today. Okay. So... In that survey, I I asked people how patriarchy has hurt them. Uh, That's one of the things I asked them. One of the ways that patriarchy has hurt me is in the way it's influenced my understanding and my experience of sex. When I was 11, I invented something amazing. I discovered something that nobody else in the world had ever known. I discovered it late at night, lying in bed. I found that my body could do this amazing, amazing thing. And I couldn't wait till the next day to tell everybody else about it. I gathered around a group of young men around the same age as me, and I said to them, I discovered this amazing thing. I call it simulated sex. And I described to them what I'd been doing, which was rubbing myself until I achieved orgasm. Uh, And they said, that's wanking. Everyone knows about that. (laughs) And I realized I hadn't invented simulated sex. I just discovered masturbation. One of the ways that, that you could describe my upbringing is feminist. Until I was eight, my father looked after me and my mum went out to work. My older half-sisters, who are old enough to have played aunt-like roles in my childhood, as well as my mum and my dad, were influenced by the feminist movements of the 60s and the 70s. The women in my family were strong feminist role models, debunking many of the social myths that get imparted to young children through culture. In fact, in my family, it's the women who who both make the decisions and wield the financial clout. They are not representative of society, however. Uh, If we we have to look at things through this dominator model, uh, the people in charge in my family are the women. My mum's marriage to my stepdad was a complicated blip in that, but it was just a blip. That blip happened when I turned eight and things got complicated. I witnessed and experienced a patriarchal model in my home life, and the world stopped being a safe space for me. But even then, I had a strong feminist perspective imparted to me by my father. During those years, he was a member of of a feminist children's book club, and many of the books I was reading came from there. Even as I was experiencing the opposite of a positive male role model in my main home, when I went to my dad's at weekends, I was shown a model of masculinity that embraced not only feminism, but love, empathy and compassion. I was dressed in hand-me-downs from my niece which meant that I was regularly sent to primary school wearing pink jeans. I didn't really conceive of the idea that but boys and girls were significantly different. I had three sisters and I had always played with boys and girls. But during those complicated years, it's interesting to note that for some reason I stopped having girls who were my friends. From then until I was about 15, all my friends would be boys. I occasionally had girlfriends, but I didn't have girl friends. In primary school, we basically self-segregated ourselves along gender lines. And this is so strange to me, thinking back on that, because that's the time before the hormones kick in. That's the time before the complications that cause some men and some women to change the way that we act towards each other. I was around nine years old when Charmaine Case dropped my rubber on the floor and when I reached down to pick it up, she flashed me her vulva. When I was ten or so, I told Rebecca Swift, who I was going out with, that it wasn't right for us to continue to go out because I'd seen Charmaine's vulva, but I hadn't seen hers. This resulted in us showing each other our genitals behind the back of her garden shed. Although I wasn't aware of it at the time, this was, as your laughter suggests, a very manipulative move, and looking back at it makes me shudder. I wish I'd had better sex education, either from my school or from my parents. I learned all the practicalities of sex, but two important areas were left out, understanding consent and articulating desire. And those, it seems to me, are the most important parts. And even in terms of the practicalities, there were clearly some gaps in my understanding as my invention of masturbation should demonstrate. All the time when I lost my virginity when I was 16, where we were so paranoid that we'd have unsafe sex that we kept stopping having gaps and then carrying on with the same condom, which of course is not very safe. Instead of learning consent and desire, what I instead managed to learn was guilt. Despite being brought up in an entirely non-religious household, so much of how I came to understand my sexuality was through shame. Part of this comes from the culture, and part of it comes from the atmosphere that my stepdad brought into into our household. I was inventing masturbation next door to the room where my mum and my stepdad were ripping each other apart. Sex became something linked with sadness to me, a way to momentarily block out the screaming rows. I think the shaming we are all taught to perpetuate makes all genders into weapons against each other. We slot into a horrible jigsaw puzzle that encourages us all to ignore and devalue consent, our own and and each other's. Men are seen as consenting all the time and having nasty desires, and women are seen as lacking both the ability to desire and the ability to withhold consent. And when women do consent, they are shamed in a very different way to men. Men are seen as disgusting animals, but that is presented as our natural state. Women who desire are seen as deviant. The best stuff that I learned about sex came from my mother, although since she doesn't have boundaries, it was still pretty confusing stuff. For example, she often told me that giving birth to her second son was the most sexual experience of her life. This made me feel pretty strange since I am her second child Uh, but it also taught me something about some women's experiences. She also kept me informed about menstruation. My mum had been a nurse and she is very matter-of-fact about that stuff. Periods weren't mystified or hidden in our household and the other thing I remember her saying to me a lot was that most of the best sex she'd ever had had not involved her coming which is a useful thing to know and consider, but possibly a questionable emphasis to be, to be giving to an adolescent boy, I think. Um, this is the thing, even with progressive and supportive parents, I still don't think my understanding of sex and relationships was clear. Partly because of the dysfunctional and disjointed nature of my upbringing, but also because the messages and narratives being spelt out all around me by culture were not the ones that demonstrated consent or desire. I don't think it's fair to say that when I was a teenager, I didn't know how to talk to girls. I knew that talking to all humans was pretty much the same thing. But I didn't know how to talk to girls about desire. I didn't know how to negotiate romance. To be honest, I'm not sure I do now. If I'd had better sex education, I'd have known that the idea of virginity is a weird one anyway. Sex isn't just when a penis goes into a vagina. There are many ways to have sex. So I'd had sex before I officially lost my virginity. I was having sex at 15 when me and my previous girlfriend were messing around in my bed on and off for six months. During those six months, I did a lot of things to her that which we both enjoyed, but she didn't get me off. I was always confused about why, and a few years later, when drunk at a nightclub, I asked her, and she said that she didn't know either. But the thing is, I didn't ask. I didn't know how to ask. We communicated mostly non-verbally about the sex that we didn't even know we were having. Again, this is, I think, down to the policing of heterosexuality. Women are supposed to have sex but not want it, and men are supposed to want sex all the time, but only in a manly way. If you don't fit that manly model, then you have to push your sexuality down. The best piece of sex education my mum gave me was when I was five years old, and myself and another boy of the same age were playing doctors and nurses with his sister and examining each other. Everything was cool and then suddenly it wasn't. We'd overstepped a boundary and she was crying. I went to find my mum and tell her what was happening and she came and talked to us and explained the importance of consent and communication. She didn't shame any of us. And because of that, her lesson definitely had some in- impact. This was a response that a man gave in my survey to the question, how have you hurt people in a way influenced by patriarchy? I rape my girlfriend because I did not know what rape was. Now, I've cut it for time for this performance, which is already 12 minutes, I'm sorry, to myself, but I was sexually assaulted by a woman uh, when I was younger, and she didn't understand that I wasn't consenting. I don't have enough fingers to count the amount of people I know who are survivors. And that's just the people who have told me. Men don't talk to other men about rape, and we certainly don't talk about consent. Men I know will have raped people. Men you know will have raped people. Rapists aren't monsters, they are humans, and generally speaking, they are men. Why do more men rape? I think it's because of the power dynamics we currently have and because we have a culture that is supportive of rape. Men are statistically more likely to be raped by a man than a woman. And when they are raped by women, they are less likely to see it as rape and so less likely to report it. Rape, like other forms of violence, is a power issue, not a gender issue. There are survivors of all genders and there are abusers of all genders. The culture around sex and gender confuses us about communication and consent. And I think it is possible within this for people of all genders to cross boundaries without knowing it. To assume consent is there when it isn't. Talking about consent more and finding ways to articulate our desires more will help us get rid of these mistakes. And a culture of blurred lines encourages and forgives abuse. Men need to talk to each other and call each other out when we perpetuate rape culture. We need to make it clear to our peers that it is not socially acceptable to rape, that there are more kinds of rape than evil monster rape that the media tells us to be scared of, and that we can be raped by men, that we can be raped by women, and that nice guys do rape. We need to talk about this stuff and we need to look back at our teenage years and our past and reevaluate our behaviors. Have we violated people's autonomy and consent? Have we endorsed and supported others to treat people like things? Looking back at my own behaviour, I have certainly violated boundaries. I have attempted Harrison Ford style kisses, I have misread signals, I have manipulated and lied to persuade people to sleep with me. I am working to change my relationship to consent and improve my ability to express my own desire honestly. Trying to learn how to say what I want and how to listen to what other people want. And judging from the responses that I got doing the man survey, I am not alone. Thank you. So thank you for, uh, for being here for that. Uh, I've spared you the, uh, the actual account of my, of my uh, own sexual assault, the, the sexual assault that was done to me, but come to my show in Edinburgh and you'll see it. Um, <laughs> You'll hear it, rather. Uh, The show's going to be previewed in London as well on the 23rd of July at the Dog Star, uh, and the the Edinburgh run of it is going to be from the 8th to the 30th of August at 12.05 at the Cabaret Voltaire, which I'm saying mostly for the benefit of the podcast. What I'd like to say to the benefit of you guys, though, before we have a break, which I'm sure we'll need, is that I've got 50 more men to get the responses of. I've got to 950. I want to get to 1,000. And I've got 50 more men that I need to get. Things dropped off a lot when I said that I didn't support kind of radical feminist uh, beliefs on, the, on my Twitter feed. And then the radical feminist stopped sharing. So so please help me um, to get some more men to fill it in. Uh, you can find it uh, under the hashtag man survey. And I'm goose fat 101 on twitter and i've been sharing all the responses they're anonymous but they're to be shared so there's a lot to read through they're very very interesting often heartening often depressing lots of emotions thank you and that's the end of this act let's have a break (laughs) tragic spring is here that means tragic summer is on its way and that's happening on saturday the 6th of june at the Hackney Attic including Tragic Holidays featuring Sajila Kirshy Tragic Climate guest curated by Alice Bell who will be looking at Tragic Climate Change and then Tragic Leisure featuring Radcliffe Royds and Charlie Harrison And that's just the start of the tragic summer because on the 23rd of July at the Dog Star in Brixton, we've got a night of tragic previews where myself and Radcliffe Royds will both be showing our solo storytelling show, which Stand Up Tragedy is producing as part of our lineup for Tragic Edinburgh 2015. Stand-up Tragedy will be happening nearly every day from the 8th to the 30th of August at the Banshee Labyrinth from 7.30 till 8.30 bringing an hour of tragic variety to most days of the festival. On Mondays we'll have special guest host and guest curated nights and on Tuesdays we're taking the night off and instead there'll be live recordings of my other podcast Getting Better Acquainted. I'll be doing my solo show at 12.05 at Cabaret Voltaire every day apart from Mondays. And Radcliffe will be doing his show at the Stafford Centre at 7.30pm. It's going to be a tiring and tragic and amazing and wonderful summer. So spend some of your summer with some tragedy. And for now, the tragedy is over. This podcast has been produced by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and the reactionary.